invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We began three weeks ago in the Upper Room Discourse. It's John 13 through 17. We had been moving at a decently quick pace um, through this gospel, and we have to slow down in the Upper Room Discourse. This all takes place, chapter 13 through 17, on one night, on Thursday night of the Passion Week. They're in the upper room, and then they'll move over across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. And John is going to give us five full chapters in a 21-chapter book on one night, just one conversation. And so we set the stage the last three weeks in chapter 13. We saw Jesus' love for us, humble love's example, and the motivation for our love for others, and the blessing that we receive as we live out the love that Jesus has given to us. Then we saw uh, the betrayal enacted. It began. Um, the betrayal was predicted by Jesus to let the disciples know when this happens, don't be surprised. In fact, I want you to believe me because I told you beforehand. The betrayer himself was identified. Uh, John asks Jesus, who is it? And Jesus says, it's Judas. And then he tells Judas, go. What you have to do, do it quickly. And so the, be- the betrayal began and then when Judas leaves, there's a different tone that we looked at last week. Jesus, as it were, just takes a breath and says, okay, now the Son of Man is glorified. This is the whole reason I came. I am here. I am ready. I'm going to die. And I'm, go- I'm going to leave. He announces his departure, and that weighs heavy on the disciples. Why are you leaving? Where are you going? Let us follow you. He gives them the new commandment that we should love one another as he himself loves us. And by this, all men will know that we are his disciples. Peter has spoken up. His response to the whole thing was, hang on, let's go back to the departure thing. Did, did you really say you're leaving? Why can't I come with you? Why can't I follow you? I, I'll go to, to death. I'll follow you even to death. And Jesus says, no, actually, before the sun rises, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So there's a very real reason why the disciples are going to be troubled, as chapter 14, verse 1 says. They are troubled. They're distressed. There was a betrayer in their midst. John even knows who it is. Jesus says he's leaving them. They've been following for three and a half years, and now Jesus says, I'm out of here. And he told them, you can't even follow me. And, and when Peter tried to say, yes, I can, Jesus said, you're going to deny me. So the most outspoken leader of the disciples, Peter himself, is going to deny Jesus three times before the sun even rises. What is happening? The disciples must be thinking, what's going on? Their entire world, in the span of just minutes, has crumbled. I don't know if you've ever been there. Have you ever been there? Where in in just a moment, your life was perfect and fine, and then a moment happened, and the entirety of your life has changed. When the doctor tells you something that you, you can comprehend, but your brain literally won't even allow you to fully understand it. And so you have to ask, wait, hang on, what, what did you say is happening? When you receive a phone call and on the other end of the line, the news is so devastating that your heart skips a beat and you're silent. You don't even know how to respond and you're silent for so long that the person on the other end says, are are you still there? Have you ever been in a moment where everything crumbles around you? 
The reality is, if you haven't, you probably will be. There are so many things in this life to be troubled about. Maybe you're not in that place right now. Maybe you have no turmoil in your soul. And praise the Lord for a season of peace. But oh, there will be moments, days, seasons, where your heart, your soul, your very being is in turmoil and you cannot find rest. Remember Psalm 56, verse 3. We sang it um, as little kids. When I am afraid, I will trust in you and God's, God whose word I praise. Notice the psalmist doesn't say, if I become afraid, I'll trust in you. He says, when I am afraid, I'm going to become afraid. I know that fear is going to happen. I'm going to be troubled. D.A. Carson says it this way. All we have to do is live long enough and we'll experience a deeply troubled heart. So these verses before us this morning are so relevant and practical for us. And I just pray I've been praying this entire week that if you have any sense of a troubled soul this morning, that you would find healing balm with these verses. That Jesus, as he's speaking to the disciples, would speak through them to you this morning. And that you would find comfort and peace in the midst of the storm. Let's read them together and we'll pray and ask God's blessing on our time. John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. God, I pray that your spirit would encourage us this morning through the preaching of the word. That he would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law. And as we see Jesus Christ and the way that he ministered so selflessly in these moments. And gave practical hope and comfort in the midst of turmoil. That our souls would latch on to that comfort. That we would cling to the comfort that Jesus has designed for his disciples to be comforted by. And may the turmoil that we are going through. May it find a little bit of rest this morning. As we see reasons why our souls don't have to be troubled anymore. God, we love you, and I pray that through everything that we do in, the, in these moments, Jesus would be exalted. We pray it in his name. Amen. So, chapter 14. Remember, it's Jesus who is headed for the agony of the cross. It's Jesus who is about to be um, disfellowshipped, as it were, from the Father. It is Jesus who's going to become the sin bearer in a matter of hours. It's Jesus who, in chapter 13, said, My soul is deeply troubled. And yet here it's Jesus who is doing the comforting. The disciples are confused, they're frustrated, they're uncertain, they're scared. Verse 27 tells us they're not just troubled, they're afraid. And Jesus in his last hours says, I'll take care of you, I'll comfort you. Notice the love of Jesus. He's concerned not for himself, he's concerned for his disciples. Such care, such amazing love. 
And he has the exact same love for us this morning in the midst of our turmoil. J.C. Ryle says it this way, Even the best of Christians have many bitter cups to drink between grace and glory, between salvation and heaven. Even the best of Christians, it's, it's bound to happen. You're going to go through hard times. And so as the disciples are going through moments of turmoil in their own souls, Jesus is going to give them five reasons, very clear, five very clear reasons why you do not need to have turmoil in your soul. Five reasons why you do not need to be troubled. Reason number one, when he says, do not let your heart be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. He points to reason number one, Jesus is sovereign and trustworthy. Jesus is sovereign and trustworthy. There's a reason why you do not have to fear. There's a reason why you don't need to be in turmoil because Jesus is sovereign and he's trustworthy. Verse one, do not let your heart be troubled. Literally stop letting your hearts be troubled. And we know that word trouble. We've seen it several times in the gospel of John. Shudder, agitated, trembling. Don't tremble in your soul. Stop now. You can stop now. You don't have to keep on going through this turmoil. Stop now. Okay, how? What's the remedy? Middle of verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. This is a really tricky verse to translate in Greek. It could be two commands, which is what the NASB says. Believe in God, believe in me. Um, it, It also could just be, you do believe in God, you should believe or you do believe in me. I think the best way to translate this would be, you believe in God, not a command, Not a, you need to start, but disciples, you believe in God. You find your refuge and your foundation and your joy and your hope and your comfort in God. So here's the command. Believe in me. You believe in God. I am God. Believe in me. You believe in God whom you can't see. I have spoken the words of God. I've performed the acts of God. I can be trusted as God. You believe in God. You know that God has a plan and through what you're going through, you'll be safe. You can trust me. I'm trustworthy. I'm sovereign. Even when it looks like and feels like your world is falling apart, don't give in to despair because God's in control. And guess what? I'm in control as well because I am God. That's what Jesus is saying. I am God. The main point of this opening statement, this opening verse Don't let your hearts be troubled or in the positive, believe in me. The opposite of letting your heart be troubled is a belief in God. Believe in me. Trust me. The disease here, if we can call it that, is a troubled heart. And the remedy that Jesus gives us is faith in him. Faith will enable comfort to seep into your heart and rid your soul of the troubled of the troubled nature of what's happening. Isaiah tells us so well, Isaiah 26, verse 3, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. Why? Because he trusts in you. So the person who steadfastly trusts in God will be kept in perfect peace. You'll be kept in perfect peace. So if there's one single message in this verse, and really in all of these verses that we're going to study this morning, it's that the basis of comfort is simple, trusting, childlike faith. If you're discouraged, if you're worried, if you're anxious, if you're bewildered, if you're perplexed or confused or agitated, if you need comfort, the answer to your dilemma is found in trusting Jesus and centering all of your thoughts, all of your hopes on him. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. 
trust in me, believe in me. Why? Because I'm, I'm in control. I'm sovereign. I know the betrayer is going. I know what's happening. I'm not going to have my life taken from me. I'm laying it down. I'm sovereign and I'm trustworthy. Trust me. Number two, a second reason why we don't have to have turmoil. Number one, because Jesus is sovereign and trustworthy. Number two, the Father's house has a room for you. The Father's house has a room for you. If you want to keep the Jesus element here, Jesus is Father's house, but that's just a lot of possessives there. So the Father's house has a room for you. Verse 2. In my father's house. Now, remember, these words are given by Jesus to comfort his disciples. So let's find comfort in them. In my father's house are many dwelling places. Father's house. What would what would the disciples have thought Jesus was talking about? In my father's house. Remember in John chapter two, what Jesus called his father's house? The temple. So they would have thought, okay, the temple, there's a little apartments on the outside of the temple building. In my father's house are many rooms. Wait, I go there to prepare. This is why they're going to be confused. Where are you going? You're going to the temple? You already cleansed the temple on Monday. What's happening? Jesus is not speaking of the temple here. He's speaking of heaven. He's speaking of heaven. Just write down Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. Hebrews 9, 23 through 24 tells us, the author of Hebrews tells us that the temple, that God made a bunch of things in our physical world to copy the spiritual world. And one of those things is the temple. The temple is a copy of what heaven is. It's a, it's a picture of what heaven is. It's a dwelling place where God would dwell and you could be with him, but not permanently because the temple was destroyed. So yes, the temple was the father's house, but it was the um, temporary father's house. It's not the permanent house of the father. So Jesus says, my father's house, heaven has many dwelling places. Sometimes heaven in the Bible is called a country because it's so vast. Sometimes it's called a city because of its inhabitants. Sometimes it's called a kingdom because of its ruler and its order. Sometimes it's called a paradise because it's beautiful. And sometimes it's called a house because it's filled with a family. Here Jesus says, my father has a house and in it there are many dwelling places. Remember the way that we used to memorize this when we were younger? In my father's house are many mansions, right? This word is not mansions. This word that the translation of mansions goes back to Tyndale's translation of this word from a Latin word. It's not mansions. It's not that you will have a mansion in heaven. Sorry to burst your bubble if you thought you were going to get a big mansion. There's a room for you in a, an enormous, massive house that God has. There's a room for you. There's a space for you. There's a place for you. There's a room in God's house for you. This word dwelling places in the Greek, it's used only one other time in the entire New Testament. It's used in chapter 14, verse 23, and it's used to speak of an abode. In fact, just turn there really quickly. You can see it. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode. That's the same Greek word. A place where you dwell permanently. I will be with you permanently. So he says, there are many permanent dwelling places inside of my father's house. Many. Ample provision for you. It's a very, very, very large house. Some of the audio adrenaline fans in the 
congregation know? It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. Yes, it is. Even uh, the New Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the new heavens and new earth, is described in Revelation as being 1,500 miles cubed. 1,500 miles cubed, which, if you do the math, that's 2.25 million square miles. So the capital city, only the capital city of heaven is 2.25 million square miles. Um, In comparison, the city of London, the greater area of the city of London, is 607 square miles. So 2.25 million square miles versus London being 607 square miles. Just read Revelation 21 and 22. The new heavens and the new earth with the new Jerusalem right in the middle. It's a beautiful, spacious, enormous place. A golden diamond city. It's massive. But it's not just massive. It's permanent. It's permanent. In my Father's house are many massive dwelling places. A permanent place. In this world we have chaos. In the next world we have permanent peace. We have permanent peace. This isn't a hotel where you enter and then you'll leave. Our world, this earth is our hotel. We enter, we'll leave, and we'll go home. We'll go home. So Jesus says, look, I'm trustworthy, I'm sovereign, you can trust me, and that will be comfort to your soul. I'm also, I know that when I go to the Father, guess what? You're going to be with me, and my Father's house has many rooms for you. There's a place for you in my Father's house, and it's permanent, where no more trouble, no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow will exist. Number three, third reason why we don't have to have trouble in our souls, Jesus is personally preparing a place for you. Jesus is personally preparing a place for you. Now, every word in that uh, little statement is very important. Um, preparing personally, he himself is going to do it. But for you, I think, is the aspect of what Jesus is saying here that would bring us the most hope. He says in the middle of verse 2, If it were not so, I would have told you because I'm going to prepare a place for you. Um, you're going to make it there because I'm preparing a place for you to be. So in your sorrow that I'm leaving, don't be troubled because you're going to be with me. And in your shame, just think about Peter here. Peter was just told, you're going to deny me three times. And in your shame, you could be so troubled in your soul over your sin and over your guilt that you could think, that's it, God's done with me. And Jesus says, no, no, you're going to be with me. I'm, I'm making it for you, for you. You'll be there with me. What does it mean to prepare a place? The end of verse 2. I go to prepare a place for you. My Bible, uh, New American Standard, says I go to prepare a place. That's a very good translation. Some translations would say I go there to prepare a place. The word there is not there. I'm going to prepare you a place. That's what he's saying. I'm going to prepare you a place. But what does that mean? Does that mean that there's some defect in heaven? That like if you were to go there right now, whoops, it's not ready, just hang on. What does this mean that he's preparing us a place? I don't think that it means there's a defect in heaven. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, Jesus speaking about the end times and about the judgment. 
says, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there's a kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's ready. It's ready for you right now. If you were to die right now, it's ready. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you? It's not that there's a defect in heaven. Your room is fine. What isn't fine is that you cannot get there if Jesus doesn't do what he's about to do. Your room is locked tight. Every room in heaven is locked tight to sinners who are not forgiven. And so in about 12 hours, Jesus is saying, I'm going to go and prepare that place for you. I'm going to prepare a way for you to make it to your eternal joy. I'm going to open the door for you. Even in verse 6, when we get to verse 6, I am the way. I'm going to become the way for you by dying. Jesus is the Lamb of God who is going to be slain. He's about to be slain. The wrath of God, the condemnation, the curse of God, it's still unsatisfied. And Jesus is about to become a curse for us and bear our condemnation and endure the bruising of the Father. Death has yet to be defeated. Jesus is about to give his life and then take it back again from the jaws of death. So every single obstacle between us and our room in the Father's house is about to be removed in the next three days. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm, I'm going to prepare in my going. Your room's ready, but you can't get there yet. I think also what Jesus is saying, and this will lead us into our fourth point, is I am your room in my Father's house. So I am not yet prepared to receive you to myself. I have to die. I have to be glorified. I have to intercede for you. And when I've done that, I'll be ready to receive you to myself. Then I can come and take you to myself. There's work that still needs to be done. That's what Jesus is saying. These entire hours, these next hours and days are me preparing the way for you. So Jesus is sovereign and trustworthy. We can trust him. The Father's house has room for you. You specifically has your name on it. And he's personally preparing a place for you, a way for you. He's making that way. And number four, comfort number four, Jesus is coming back to receive us to himself. He's coming back to receive us to himself. This is where there's a shift. Verse three, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may also be. This is the shift from a place to a person. Heaven is more of a person than it is a place. It's more than a place. Heaven is a person. Notice this passage does not say, I am going to come back and I'm going to take you to heaven. It's not what this verse says. This verse says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me. I'm going to take you to be with me. What's the essence of heaven? It's being in the immediate presence of Jesus. So though we could break this moment out into a sermon series on the end times and the second coming of Christ, I don't think that's the authorial intent. I don't think Jesus is focusing on the timing of his second coming or how it's going to happen. He's focusing on the fact that when he comes again, he's going to provide comfort and peace in his second coming because he's going to bring us to God. He's going to bring us to himself. This text isn't concerned about our return to heaven. It's concerned about our reunion with Jesus. 
That's what this text is focusing on. You're going to be with me where I am. So I Psalm 116 verse 15 says it is precious in the sight of the Lord for his loved ones to die. It's a good thing for believers to die. It's a good thing because then they get to be with Jesus forever. In fact, John chapter 17, turn to chapter 17, verse 24. This is such a strange prayer. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't understand Jesus, you don't understand what Paul says in Philippians chapter one, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you don't think of death as gain, as death as being a good thing because it gets us to God, then this verse doesn't make sense because Jesus prays for our death. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me. This is us. Be with me where I am. Where is Jesus? He's in heaven so that they may see my glory, which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants us to be with him. How is that going to happen? Only one of two ways. Either he comes back to get us or we die and we go to be with him. Death is not the end. Death is not the end. He says, I'm going to bring you to myself. He wants to be with us. The question is, is that what we ultimately want? John Piper says this in his very helpful book, God is the Gospel. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness with all the friends that you ever had on earth, with all the food that you've ever liked, with all the leisurely activities you've ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures that you ever tasted, no human conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus was not there? I think the majority of modern evangelicalism would say, yeah, I'd be happy. I'd be so happy because finally, peace, rest, No more problems, no more pain. But if Jesus isn't in heaven, it's not heaven. You see this in every religion. The prize is a place. Every religion, the prize is a a place. I want to do something to get to a place. Even in religions that would call themselves Christian... They would use Jesus to get to a place. Jesus is a stepping stone to get to a place. If he's a stepping stone to get to a place, then he is not your supreme treasure. And ultimately, you're not living out what John 17, 3 says. Eternal life is that they would know you and the one that you sent, Jesus says. Eternal life is to know Jesus, to be with him. That's eternal life. So Jesus says, I'm going to come back to receive you to myself, that where I am, you'll be. I want to be with you. I made a way for you. Question is, do we want to be with him? He says, you know that way. I made the way. I'm making the way. Verse four, you know the way where I'm going. And the disciples at this moment are collectively thinking, we don't know what's happening What's going on? We thought tomorrow we were going to establish the kingdom. And in this moment, you're telling me a betrayer is coming. Peter's going to deny. I'm dying. You can't follow. What's happening? Maybe we think that you're going to the temple in my father's house. I'm going to the temple. But that's not what it is. And you would expect in this moment, you'd expect Peter to speak up, right? Peter's going to speak up and he's going to say something. Well, I know where you're going. 
But I think because of what just happened, because Jesus just told him, uh, you are going to deny me three times. I think he's probably a little bit more reserved, been rebuked. So Thomas speaks, verse 5. Thomas says, Lord, uh, we don't know where you're going. So how do we know the way? Jesus said in verse 4, you know the way. You don't know to, need to know where it leads. You know the way. Just trust the way. You don't need to know where it leads. And Thomas says, no, no, we need to know where we're going in order to understand the way. Notice both Peter from last week and Thomas this week don't want to miss out on being with Jesus. They want to be with Jesus. No, 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 don't, don't, let, don't let us be left in this moment where we don't know where you are or where you're going or where we can go to follow you. They want to be with him. And so Jesus says, verse 6, a, a well-known verse, in context, he says, I'm the way. You want to know the way? I'm the way. I am the way. And ultimately, I'm the end as well. We don't know where you're going. Well, you're, I'm going to heaven. That's where I am. And I'm going to receive you to myself. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This was the fifth and final source of encouragement in these six verses. Number one, Jesus is trustworthy. He's sovereign and trustworthy. Number two, the Father's house has a room for you. It has your name on it if you're saved. Number three, Jesus is personally preparing a place for you. Number four, Jesus is coming back to receive us to himself. And number five, Jesus alone provides eternal life. Jesus alone provides eternal life. Notice again that Jesus is not so much focused on a place as a person. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. It's not nobody gets to heaven. It's not nobody comes to the Father's house. It's nobody gets to the Father. It's about being reconciled with God. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. This is the question every religion must answer. And it's the question that only Christianity can truly answer. How can you have eternal life? How can you know that you're reconciled with God? Jesus says, I am the way, definite articles, the way, the truth, the life. There's no exception. I'm the only way, the only truth, the only life. And just in case we don't understand the definite articles, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, in our incredibly inclusivistic world, many people, maybe even in our own hearts, are going, man, that's really exclusive. There's no other way to get to God. Jesus is the only way. Well, what about other religions? What about other people that are really nice? F.F. Bruce says it this way. If this seems offensively exclusive, let it be borne in mind that the one who makes this claim is the incarnate word, the revealer of the Father. So this is God, very God. If he's exclusive, it's okay for us to be exclusive too. He says, if God has no avenue of communication with mankind apart from his word, incarnate or otherwise then mankind has no avenue of approach to God apart from the same word who became flesh and dwelt among us in order to supply such an avenue of approach. There's only one way to get to God. There's only one way for God to, quote unquote, get to us, to communicate with us. That's his word. And there's only one way for us to get to God. That's his word. This is exclusive because Jesus is exclusive. He is the only way. There's no other way. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. This is the sixth I am statement in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the, sh the shepherd, I am the resurrection and life. And now here, I am the way. I am the way to God, I am the truth from God, 
and I am the life in God. Or another way of saying it, if you want to use ours, I am the, the way of reconciliation. I am the only revelation. And I provide the, rest, the regeneration. I alone provide the regeneration. Let's just take these as, as they come. I am the way. The way. What does Jesus mean by this? Interesting to know in Acts chapter 19, verse 9, and Acts chapter 19, verse 23, early Christians in the early church were called followers of the way. I love that. The way to what? What? No, the way is the what. Jesus is what we want. He is the way to himself to be in a right, reconciled relationship. John chapter 10, verse 9. Let me give you four verses. You can just write them down. Jesus says, I am the door. This is John 10, verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. Enters through me. He's the only way. Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Through whom we've also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. We obtained our introduction by faith through Jesus. No other way. Ephesians 2.18, just a little bit. After what we read this morning, for through Jesus, we both have our access in one spirit to the father. So through Jesus, we have access to the father. And then Hebrews 10, verse 20, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. He is the one who inaugurated. There's only one way to get to God. There's only one way. Jesus is the only way, not Muhammad, not Buddha. There is no other way. Not even ourselves. I think that we'd be quick to say, okay, yes, we know that religion doesn't work. We know all these other religions that are false. No matter how motivated people are or how sincere or genuine they are, if they're believing the wrong thing, it's still the wrong thing. But can we just emphatically say this morning that we are not good enough to get to heaven ourselves? Jesus is the only way, not another person, not another man, not another belief system, and not us, not ourselves. We are not the way to get to God. No one is good. No, not one. Romans chapter two, Romans chapter three, by the works of the law, no man will be justified in his sight. We are separated from God. That's why we need a way back. When Jesus says, I'm the way, that means we have a separation between us and God and we need a road back. And Jesus is the only road back. First Timothy chapter two, verse five, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator. Oh, what folly there is in our attempt to try and find another way. What folly there is in our attempt to try and figure out another way to get to God on our own. That'd be like if there was a cure for cancer, if we knew we had a cure that cured every single type of cancer and we knew that it cured it perfectly. And we said, that's awesome. I'm going to look for another one. No, if we have the cure, then go to it, love it, embrace it. So don't take the road of human morality or religion, thinking that somehow you can burn away your bad works by doing good works. That doesn't work. Don't think that you can earn God's love by doing things he likes. That's religion. Religion says God doesn't like me because I don't do the things he likes. If I start doing the things he likes, he'll like me. That doesn't work. The only reason that God will love you and accept you on the last day is if you are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ and have his righteousness given to your account. Your righteousness 
as nice as it might be, as genuine as it might be, will not hold up on the day of judgment. You need the righteousness of another. You need the righteousness of another. So he says, I'm the way. I'm also the truth. I'm the truth. I'm not false. You can trust me. Even in the midst of the turmoil, I'm not false. You can trust me. I'm the truth. I perfectly reveal God to you. Remember, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you know I am the exact representation. Hebrews chapter 1 of the Father. I am the exact representation of the Father. So, what is Jesus revealing to us about God? God is holy. There has to be a substitute to cleanse you of your sin, to cleanse me of my sin. God is personal. He wants to be with you. And he will make a way for that to be possible. He loves you. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Jesus is the truth revealing the Father to us. And finally, he's the life. I'm the way, the truth, and I'm the life. Why do we need life? Why is that important? Two reasons. Number one, uh, A.W. Pink will help us out with this. The whole Bible bears solemn witness to the fact that the natural man is spiritually lifeless. We just read that this morning, Hebrews, or Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. So, A.W. Pink continues, The natural man walks according to the course of his world. He has no love for the things of God. The fear of God is not upon him, nor has he any concern for God's glory. Self is the center and the circumference of his existence. He is alive to the things of the world, but is dead to heavenly things. The one who is out of Christ exists, but he has no spiritual life. But... Just as when the prodigal son returned from the far country to the father and the father said, my son was dead and is alive again. So too we can have life in Christ. So we need life and he is our life. We need a way to have life and he is our life. But not just that. It's very encouraging for Jesus to say, I am the life because in a matter of hours, he's going to be dead. So for him to say, I am life even when I die especially when I die, I'm providing life, abundant life for you, such that, John 11, even if you die, you will never die if you are in Christ. First John chapter 5, verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God, and this is eternal life. The greatest threat against us in this world is death. That's the greatest threat. And Jesus says, I'm the life, so there's no more threat. There's no more fear. There's no more worry. I'm the life. So, to sum it up, instead of alienation, there's a way to God. Instead of ignorance and error, there's truth. And instead of death, there is life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is no other way to get to heaven. Church attendance doesn't do it. Good works don't do it. No other religion offers it. Jesus alone is the way because Jesus alone is the one who says, I will give you my righteousness and that will be your entrance into heaven. If you want to go to heaven, you have to be perfect. So there's two ways to get to heaven. There's two ways. You can either be perfect or you can gain the perfection of somebody else. Somebody else can give you their perfect standing. So since The Bible says everyone has fallen short of the glory of God and no one can be perfect. There's no one blameless. There's no one righteous. Then that way of getting to heaven is impossible. So we have only one way. And that is through the perfect record of righteousness 
of our Savior. His sinless life in our account, his sin-bearing death on our behalf. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. He needed to do that. And therefore, he's the way. So, five reasons why Jesus says, you don't have to be in turmoil. You don't have to have a troubled heart. But the reality is, if we sum all these up, heaven is the ultimate answer for a troubled heart. Disappointments are troubling. Circumstances are troubling. Spiritual matters are troubling. And we at this church, we do not believe in some sort of like Pollyanna Christianity where just everything's fine and just don't look on the negative side. No, no. Jesus told us in this world, you will have tribulation. Life is painfully brutal more often than not. But although there is great cause to be troubled, there is even greater reasons not to be. That's why we are biblically optimistic. Remember Psalm 23? The last verse in Psalm 23? Goodness, surely goodness and mercy will follow me, will follow me. It's going to happen all the days of my life. It's going to chase me down. It's going to hunt me down and find me. And I will dwell, dwell, abode, right? I'm going to, I'm going to stay there forever permanently in the house of the Lord forever. I'll be in his presence. It'll be permanent. Our biblical optimism can comfort our souls. Jim Boyce, if we were to ask him, he was a pastor back east for a long time, great pastor, before he died of cancer, and he's with the Lord now. If we were to ask him, how, if I'm in turmoil, if my soul is troubled, what should I do? Help me. This is what he would say. What is a Christian to do when the world he knows falls in? The answer is that he should take himself by the hand and by a deliberate exercise of the mind in which he brings great truths to himself and then meditates upon the great strength of God and his promises. Jesus did not say, mull over your problems to his disciples. He did not even say, tell me about them, though of course we're free to do that. He said, do not let your heart be troubled. Don't let your present state continue. So if Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled, then our hearts need, to, then our hearts need not be troubled. We can be victorious if we will remind ourselves of what we know of him and trust in him fully. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, it's not here. And from which our citizenship in heaven, we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you eagerly waiting for him? Maybe your heart is in turmoil this morning because you're not seen with an eternal perspective and you're not longing for that day when we're with Jesus in heaven. The reality is unless we are heavenly minded, we will be of no earthly good. We need to be heavenly minded. C.S. Lewis says it this way. There have been times when I think we do not desire heaven at all. But more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It's the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable desire, the thing that we've desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work, and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. Do you long for heaven? 
Brothers and sisters, I can say emphatically because of the Bible, there is not a sorrow or problem that we have that the return of Jesus won't fix. When he comes back and when we are with him, every sorrow will go away. So if we can live in that reality now and the hope that we have in him, then we can find comfort and peace in the midst of the storm. Do you feel bound to heaven? There's a large part of my soul that already feels bound to heaven. My father's there. My savior's there. My home is there. My name is there. My citizenship is there. My heart is there. My inheritance is there. It's like I'm just waiting to get done with this so that I can be there. But how can I get there? Jesus made it possible for me to go to heaven because of his work preparing the way. You can't earn your way into a family, right? You can't choose your family. You can't earn, like, I will work for you and become a part of your family. You can't do that. Efforts only make you a slave. Sonship. Being a daughter or a son, that's free. So I think as we come to the table this morning and we, we stare at the hope that we have in heaven and the comfort that we have, in our eternal rest, we need to be reminded of how we can get there. That it's only because of Jesus' work on our behalf. We cannot earn being in his family. He graciously gives us that gift through his death and his resurrection. Father, I pray as we are preparing our own hearts now for communion, I pray that you would work in us Remind us of the shelter that we have in the midst of the storm. Remind us of the peace that we have in heaven. That one day we will be with him and on our place in heaven is secure. And there's a room that's more expansive than we could possibly imagine. And, and it will be permanent. It's a dwelling place of permanence. But God, may that hope point us to the fact that we couldn't get there on our own. We needed you to do the work. And so we thank you so much for sending Jesus We thank you for our Savior. We love him. And as we prepare even now to partake of communion, to be reminded of the way in which we can get to be with him, to have a reconciled relationship with the Father. God, I pray that you'd be glorified. I pray that we would rejoice with gratitude and thanksgiving in our hearts because you are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. And you give us comfort in the midst of the storm.